I'm not going to start with any easy questions. What would you do if you couldn't fail? I was vulnerable in the sense that I was just who I was. The, the cold exposure conditions the inside of our body to literally adapt. Whatever happens in the gut happens in the brain, and whatever happens in the brain happens in the gut. Finding the grace and the humor. That anti-aging is associated with at least an hour of deep sleep nightly. Absolutely had mentors. Absolutely 100% had coaches. 90 plus percent of the decisions that we make today actually stem from fear. Allow ourselves to have imperfection. Nothing starts without a plan, nothing ever goes to plan. Chaga is actually the most antioxidant rich food on the planet. If we can bring a practice into our lives that helps us be more vulnerable. I'm so thrilled that this content is getting out there, that you guys are, are promoting bold and vulnerable message and, and aspirations for people because I hope that we can all really live that every day. Hey, this is Jessica. And Svetlana, and you're listening to the Bold and Vulnerable Podcast. Where we aim to inspire others to live authentically through sharing the bold and vulnerable stories of peak performers across a variety of industries. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Sauna Space. I am a huge fan and user of their products and have my own photon light that has helped me heal over the past six months. Sauna is something that has gone back generations and is the ultimate rejuvenation for your entire body. I use my photon light for detoxification at the cellular level, but also for aiding with my sleep cycle and my parasympathetic relaxation. I use my photon light in so many ways while I'm meditating, if I need to recover from stress or anxiety, to counterbalance all the work I do in front of my computer all day with the blue light stress on my eyes and body, and for clearing up my skin. What I love about the Sauna Space products is that they are portable. You can connect them to any outlet in your house. And so you might be thinking, I can't have a sauna because I'm in a small apartment in New York City, or I just don't have the space. And with Sauna Space, they've really found the best solution and there's no special wiring or electrical work needed. My photon light is light and portable, and I love having that flexibility with my space. Our planet has over 100,000 chemicals and probably more that we don't even know about and it's not enough just to cleanse once in a while. Sauna Space can provide your daily detox and there are hundreds of studies that now show that sauna therapy is one of the most effective ways to detoxify yourself from the modern living we are accustomed to. Our sun has always been a great source of healing for us. With COVID and really wanting to boost our immune systems, I'm sure some of you have heard about vitamin D and how that can really benefit your overall immune and health. Sauna space is an accelerated healing and that incandescent red infrared light is the same type of light used in the sauna space lamps and it most closely mimics the sun and what makes it so healing for our bodies. I have a home in New England and it gets cold and overcast in the winter and you can feel that temperature dip coming, which for some people can cause seasonal depression. The sauna space lamps can help aid with these depressive states when mimicking the sun and its benefits. In addition to the chemical pollution and toxic heavy metals, we are now being bombarded with a newer toxic element, which is called EMF radiation from our cell phones, towers, Wi-Fi, smart meters, and it's clear that we need an extra layer of protection. Sauna Space is really offering this amazing EMF-free sauna experience and has pioneered this model. 
Red light therapy is something that I not only have added to my daily ritual, but I highly recommend this for anyone who wants to boost their immune system, is feeling depressed, has low sleep quality or challenges falling asleep, has any skin issues or any type of anxiety or stress. You can transform your mind-body connection and recharge so you can be at your best when you step into the craziness of each and every day. We cannot recommend sauna space enough. And of course, if you're interested, always check with your physician to make sure this is right for you. Head over to sauna space and use our discount code B-O-L-D-5, BOLD5, all caps. Darius is an Inc. 500 CEO and a TEDx curator. He participated in TEDx Golden Gate Park and at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco. He is what some might call a crazy scientist CEO who has grown companies from startup to just under a thousand employees in under three years. And he's an expert at core values. He is the author of the book, The Core Value Equation, and we can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode. Enjoy our chat with Darius. Where are you guys based out of? Uh, I'm in New England out of the Boston area and Svetlana is in uh, San Francisco. Um, oh. I, I, we met in San Francisco. I used to live there um, and I saw you had a pizza place that you really enjoyed. I, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, um, I lived in San Francisco for 17 years. Oh, wow. What so part? I, uh, all over, but I, I, I still own a place there. I own a place on Broderick and Page, um, like in the Haight. Oh yeah. But Sweet. I lived, I lived when I first moved there in 2001, I lived on 40th and Balboa in the avenues oh. in the house with like seven other roommates. And then wow. I moved to Presida Park, which is just south of Cesar Chavez on Folsom. Mm-hmm. And like, so I went to the opposite end of the city. And then I ended up right in the middle, um, wow. right on, right in the, just, just north of David or sorry, west of Divisadero. Oh, that's awesome. I used to live right down the street from Dolores Park, right in the Mission area. Yeah. Off Valencia Street. And that was like such a sweet area to live in. It was when I first moved to San Francisco and it just like immersed me right into the culture. And and then I lived in Berkeley for a little while before moving to the East Coast. Um, Where, Where in Berkeley? So I was kind of in the outskirts area. Um, There was a I guess like a little town, um, a little bit northeast called El Sobrante. Yep, I know. So I had crazy, weird, fun fact. Um, I built a tiny house and lived in a tiny house. So needed a little bit more land and space. And I ended up renting some land from a woman that was out in El Sobrante, but was like popping into Berkeley. And and, um, so that was my spot. Okay. I, I lived for, I, I did, I normally, most of the time I just tell you I lived in San Francisco, but I lived in San Francisco for 13 years. And then I moved to the border of Berkeley and Oakland. Oh, you're nice. So I lived yeah. on co- college in Claremont on the, mm-hmm. and, and literally like if you're on one side of Claremont, you're in Berkeley. And if you're on the other side, you're in Oakland. And I was on the Oakland side. Up and coming area though. It's really, really it's cool. cool. It's like Rock Ridge area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Zach, so I don't, I talk about Pisetta to 11, but my other pizza place there is Zachary's and that's like, that's the Berkeley pizza that I like. So <laughs> I have like an obsession with pizza. So I live in <laughs> Austin. Oh, what'd you say? I said, I live in Austin, Texas now and the pizza mm. here is not as good. It's, it's a bummer. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, where do you live now? <laughs> yeah, I moved to Austin. How so do you like I, it? 
I love Austin, Texas. Yeah. It's like amazing. It's a, such a cool city. Yeah, that's what I've been hearing. Yeah, I mean, it's like really, really, really cool. There's a lot of people from like the Bay Area and LA and New York that are all moving here. Yeah, and I, and, and, and I know why. I hear it's better. <laughs> it's just, well, you know, Texas is like, you know, if you guys lived in California, you'll appreciate that Texas is basically Sacramento and then you got a couple cities. Right? <laughs> So I was driving, when I first moved here, I was driving from um, Austin to Houston and I called my friend up, one of my roommates from San, old roommates from San Francisco. And I'm like, oh my God, I just realized the entire state of Texas, when you leave Dallas, Houston, or uh, Austin is basically Sacramento. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. Wait, you said a lot of people moved there and you know why, why? Oh, because it's incredible here. It's yeah. so cool. It's the vibe here. It's a music city. So yeah. it's got this like soul to it. It's like Willie Nelson's the mascot. And, and and so if Willie Nelson was a city, it would be Austin, Texas. So that's kind of hard to explain. The Bay Area is, you know, there's a bit of a pretentiousness around how cool of a place it is. And, and, and I say that the Bay Area is like the person that always knew that they were beautiful. And <laughs> And so they just kind of like were always treated really well. And That's so true. They, they never had to struggle to develop a personality. Um, and, and and at a certain point, it's just kind of annoying and old. Um, whereas Austin was like, kind of like not that attractive growing up and not that great at anything, but was a cool person and developed a really good personality. And now has become an adult and is this amazing person that everyone's like, like wants to be around. So but they had to work it had to work really hard to get here <laughs> <laughs> i love it oh my gosh that's amazing i love that well um well welcome to the show welcome to the bold and vulnerable podcast yeah. <laughs> i've been really kind of formal formally welcome you but it's so nice to get connected and and kind of meet you on a on a zoom level <laughs> yeah. because we can't meet you in person um and I just, you know, I know um, you participated in TEDx, um, at Golden Gate and the Young Museum when you were in San Francisco. And um, from what Stephanie told me, our mutual contact, and from what I read, um, you kind of call yourself a crazy scientist, CEO, serial entrepreneur, and um, you've grown companies from startup to uh, many thousands of employees and are, an expert at core values. And so I wanted to kind of get into your book a little bit um, called The Core Value Equation and kind of really unpack what's in there and, and what, what brought you to that. And maybe you can give us a little story about how you got to the place that you are now so that our listeners can really understand um, kind of where you came from and then how you got to the place where you decided, hey, I'm going to author this book and, and put this information out there. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so um, there, there's like, uh, I'll, I'll do the like beginning, middle and end because um, the, the Golden Gate Park was the middle. That's like the part in the story where like the the rom-com where they break up and then like, <laughs> so um, so I I'm like, I was an entrepreneur when I was a kid and I have a twin brother and, and, and I moved, you know, I'm, I'm 42. So I moved to San Francisco in 2001 and I was 23 and that was right after the dot-com implosion. And I was fresh out of college and the place was like dead. 
like everyone had ran out of San. It was like total. It was like COVID was there, but there was no COVID. Um, it was total. I, I mean, it was literally empty, and and I w- hadn't been there for the dot com boom, and that was a lot more like what the city looked like maybe two years ago, where it was like you couldn't find a place to rent and it was insane and every restaurant was blowing up and there was all these new places going crazy and every nightclub you couldn't get in. And, and like, that was the city in the late nineties from what I heard. Um, I was, I was in college then. So I, I wasn't experiencing that. And so when I got there, it was like not a lot going on. And so, but there was a bunch of us youngsters and we were like going around the city and partying and having fun. And it was just, but it was still kind of, it was very mellow which sounds kind of crazy for San Francisco. And um, anyway, I started a company um, and I was an entrepreneur. Now, when I say that right now, everyone's like, oh, cool. Back then, I was the only person I knew that was an entrepreneur. Like, it was not normal to be an entrepreneur. Like, you did not, there was like very few entrepreneurial programs in college. Like, there was like three, like, that I knew of. You know, it was very unusual. I, I literally did not know anyone who was an entrepreneur and I knew tons of people. Like, none of my friends were... And when I told them I was, they're like, oh, that's interesting. They were all like working for management consulting firms or they were, they even working at startups back then wasn't a thing. So there was like, you had normal, like people worked, worked for AmeriCorps, or they worked for nonprofits or they worked at like finance jobs. And so here I was starting a company when I was 25 in San Francisco uh, in 2003. And I like I opened it next to the cat club, which I don't know if that's still there or not, but it was on eighth and Folsom and, and which is still a little bit sketch, but it was definitely sketchy then. And, um, and I opened it. It was myself and an assistant who was my friend who like, she was like my age and I hired her and we like started this little business and it just started growing really quickly within three months. It, I, I started hiring more people. And before I knew it, I took over another office and my brother became my business partner and he moved to San Francisco, which is kind of a funny story in of itself. I told my brother, I bet him that he was in the same business as I was. We were both in the mortgage industry. And I said, Hey, I want you to be my business partner. And he said, well, why would I do that? I make like twice as much money as you do. And he was killing it. He was doing really well. And, and I said, okay, well, how about this? Cause I hated his fiance. I said, he's my twin brother. I said, Hey, um, <laughs> the month I make more money than you do, I need for you to ditch your fiance and I need for you to move to San Francisco. And he was like, deal. <laughs> so my brother, so it took me like three months. I made more money than my brother. He broke up with his fiance, moved up to, she, they were on the ropes anyway, but he broke up with his fiance and moved to, to San Francisco and we, we, and we started growing this business like crazy. So fast forward, the business went from like myself and an assistant to myself, my brother, and a few other people to like literally 30, 30 people in like a year. And this is like, there was no funding companies. There was no people there, You didn't raise money for startups back then. Like that was not a thing. There was no angel investors. That was super unusual. So this was all us using our own money. And before I knew it, 30 turned into 60 employees within two years. And I was like 27. I had no idea what I was doing. And so I got admitted into this program at MIT called birthing a giants. And I was like, I was like, like none of my friends were entrepreneurs. There was no entrepreneurial community for young people. And like, I was like literally just guessing and I was not doing a very good job. And so I was reading the, you know, the Bible for entrepreneurship back then was Inc magazine. And I was like up late one night on like a Friday, just like 
dying of like not running this business well. And I, and I found this program called Birthing Giants at MIT and I applied for it. And my business at this point was like a $5 million business, which, you know, that's not crazy, but that's a lot when you're like a one person shop two years earlier and you have no experience and you're managing a bunch of people who are basically your friends and they're your age. Again, this is like pre-startup, like that was not normal. Um, so I got introduced, there's a guy that ran the program, his name is Vern Harnish and he wrote a book called Scaling Up. And it's, it's kind of like a, like the Bible of scale. And there's other books now, one's called uh, Traction by Gino Wickman and who's a disciple of his. And there's OKRs now, and there's all these like, you, you can fix these problems with technology nowadays. Yeah. Um, but back then it was all manual. I mean, there were still fax machines back then to, to put it in. <laughs> So I flip, I phones, the, flip phones, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was the iPhone had does wasn't going to exist for like another four years. Like just you to, had like, a green like, screen. That's what I had. I had yes, the green screen Nokia, plain snake. This was a badass phone right here. I I keep this because I was like, man, I wish I could use that phone still. Um, <laughs> no, but MIT is the place to go. I mean, in terms of I'm in New England now, so and and I'm in the heart of Boston and. And if you're going to, you know, be in business and you're going to be an entrepreneur, you, you chose the right, the right magazine and you, you picked the right place. So, yeah, it, so it worked out. And so I got there and there's like 60 participants and they're all growing these incredible companies. In fact, it, in my class, three out of four, uh, three of the uh, co participating companies are case studies for scaling up for, for the book, scaling up 2.0, which was back then the book was called mastering the Rockefeller habits. So I was surrounded by these like entrepreneurial badasses from like all over the world. And we had half the class was not even from North America. And I mean, one of the guys became the governor of, of Kentucky, which is a story in of itself. So there's all these, he had sold his company for like over a hundred million dollars. So I was surrounded by these like really badass entrepreneurs. And the first thing we're taught is you have to have core values for your business. So my business, I get back and I'm drinking from a fire hose and I'm implementing all these things. The 60 employees go to 150 employees over the next 18 months. And I'm getting crushed. I mean, like literally I could not be, like, like I, the, the, how poorly I ran the company is like, it's, it's kind of a joke at this point, but I was trying like hard. I just was growing too fast. And I didn't know what I was doing. And so 2007 happens and I was a subprime mortgage lender. So that, uh, for people that know what that means is like, that was like, I don't know, that would be like being in the hotel business during COVID. Literally, that's actually a good example. That's probably the best way of describing it. Like I owned hotels and COVID showed up. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like a badass hotelier <laughs> and COVID was hot and heavy where I lived. <laughs> so um, my business went from we were number 40 in the Inc. 500 between 2003 and 2006. We're the 40th fastest growing company in the United States. When I showed up at the Inc. black tie ceremony in Chicago in September of 07, I joked that I was the 40th fastest shrinking company in the United States. I went from 150 to 10 employees in 90 days. And the only reason I didn't go to zero is because my company was like, it was like a train that like flipped and was on its side skidding towards a cliff. And like, it just happened to stop like an inch before the cliff. Uh, I was like, oh, I, I guess we're still alive. <laughs> we're still uh, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which by the way, a lot, it would have probably been way less painful had I just like fallen off the cliff. Like, cause the next, that was the beginning of the pain. Going from 150 to 10 employees in 90 days sounds painful. 
being alive and losing money for the next three years was way more painful. So um, I ended up killing the company in 2010. Uh, we we had to shut down the business. It just we we were it was a being a subprime mortgage lender was a, a scarlet letter. We were getting a lot of lawsuits, and we just like we couldn't survive. So we ended up closing the company down, and and then I pivoted for a couple of years. But while during that time, I. Um, I was really starting to experiment with core values and, and something happened in my last year of birthing a giants at MIT. Um, we, we did this, the night we graduated, we had a peer to peer workshop and these two guys whose names are Ken, Ken Sim and John DeHart um, from this company called nurse next door, which is one of the, the coolest companies in Canada uh, to work for. They did this, this workshop with us and they said, please stand up if your company has core values. So we all stood up and it's just a peer to peer workshop. So 60 people stand up. He says, please stay standing if your company, if you're, if you know your core values and can say them off the top of your head. And half the room sits down, 30 of the 60 people. And I was in that half. Now, mind you, I'd been three years into this program. I'm surrounded by all these amazing entrepreneurs. And we all sat down. And I was like, what the hell? And then they go, please stay standing if your employees know your core values and can say them off the top of their head. Half of the remaining half sat down. And I was like, now I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm defeated, but I was kind of interested too. I was like, oh, this is, this is surprising. So I'm eating a little popcorn and watching what's going on. And then they go, please stay standing if your customers know your core values. And the whole room sits down with the exception of John and Ken. And it was this moment that stung like really bad. And, and I said, wow, well, maybe I don't suck so much, but this is still really surprising that people don't know their core values. My core values were just designed really poorly. And so I went the next morning, I was sitting in Cambridge at this really cool little diner. And I just rewrote my core values that morning. My core values at the, prior to that morning were six values, 76 words. I could show them to you. There's nothing interesting about them. But I was like, well, what do we stand for? And I said, well, before I go there, and I had an iPhone at this point because it was 08. And I pull out, um, I pull out my iPhone and I look up Neurostech Store's core values. And they had four really like profound values that were meaningful in the tone of the, la the language of the organization. They were simple and they were meaningful. And so I was like, well, what do I stand for? What are the four things we stand for? And I, I, and I was like, look, we stand for working hard. We stand for karma, like believing in karma because we had just blown up the world economy with our industry, like doing the right thing. We stand for innovation. Like we're really innovative company and we're all about like having excellence in our business. And so I translated those into four core values, which were do work, live zen, break the box, and wow everyone. And I and then I wrote like a bunch of bullet points under what does this look like in my organization. And I brought them back to the company and and I rolled them out. And and I noticed right away there was a change. People were resonating with them differently. And that was the first step I took. And so this is in 08. So between 08 and 11, I just sat there and, and, and my business was not successful. Like I was a very unsuccessful business person during this time frame. I should have started like a, a ride share where you could sleep on people's couches and turn it into like a, a room rental thing. I don't know. You guys might know companies like that. Um, but, like uh, that. <laughs> or maybe where I go pick people's groceries up for them and bring it to their houses. Like, like I was stupid. I stayed in the mortgage industry instead of doing stuff like that. But um, <laughs> who would have thought, right? Um, but I got really smart about core values and I played with them and I had success with them. And so fast forward to 2011, at this point, I'm like five years, four and a half years into like sucking and not being successful, but I was successful in the sense that I had learned a lot about how do you 
use core values in your business. Cause I, that was the one thing that was resonating with me and I played with it a lot. And, um, but I was really distraught with the mortgage industry. Like our industry imploded and what I, and the way I can, like I said, it'd be like being a, it's the equivalent of being in a hotel now, but I would say a better analogy would be imagine you're in tech and tomorrow Google, Facebook, Uber, Apple, and Microsoft all go out of business. Like that literally happened in the mortgage business in 2007. Like every top lender, I can name them and you would be like, I've never heard of them before. Or maybe you have, but when you watch like the big short, they talk about them. Um, like these are, these were massive institutions. Like Lehman brothers was one of the biggest lenders in the United States. Like Bear Stearns was one was a 150 year old institution. There was a country called countrywide that did one out of six mortgages in the United States. You mm. like, you probably have never heard of them, right? Or if you have, it's, it's in retrospect due to what they did. So this was like, when you're on the receiving end of that, it sucks. Like it, it, I, I was embarrassed to tell people I was in the mortgage industry. Um, what do you do for a living areas? I'm like, oh, I'm in real estate finance. Um, like th that's a bit ambiguous and it, it kept me safe. And so anyway, um, but luck, as luck would have it, 2011, I almost got out. I was in this like tech incubation program at Stanford called the Founders Institute. And uh, I'm sorry, down in Palo Alto. And, and right before I got out, my brother was like, hey, I need your help. I need you to, we have this division that, that we really need to grow. It's in the Eastern, it's in the East coast. It's in Virginia. And I was like, fuck that. I'm out of the industry, you know? And, and he's like, come on, please help me. And I was like, all right. So he sucked me back in, but I was like, you know, I want to do something that has nothing to do with building a business. I, and at this point I had two friends from high school, three friends from high school, actually one who was the green witch from wicked and on, on, on Broadway, she was my prom, like literally, <laughs> like legitimately, she was my prom date from high school, and she was. I probably saw her in real life. I saw that show. So Adina Menzel was the was in the first season, and oh gee, I did the second season. Is the one I saw. Yeah, that's Eden Espinoza, who was my prom date in high school, and so and so she and she was wow. she toured with them for six years, and so she was like she was on Broadway, and then she ended up being like they toured the whole United States, for, for, and she was the person that did it, and so I saw her like follow her passions to do this amazing thing, and then I had a friend who I was on student leadership with who was like a filmmaker, and he was all of a sudden shooting music videos for like the Black Keys and Britney Spears and Kesha and like all these famous, and he won, a, he won an MTV Music Video Award back when they had those. And I was like, dude, this is so cool like that he did that. And I had this other friend who he just, he's a star on TV now, but he again was an actor and he was like in the movie um, Eight Mile with Eminem, that was his first breakout role. And he was just on the show Ballers with The Rock. And I'm like, and, and he's like this, you know, he's like a working actor who's like legit. And, and I'm seeing these guys do this. And I was like, God, I just went for the money and I'm so unhappy. So I said, I'm going to do something that has nothing to do with making money. And I was like, and I found out you could do, you could throw your own TED event. And so I went and got the license originally for TEDx. I think it was TEDx Divisadero. And then I ended up um, changing it to TEDx Golden Gate Park. And we did a, a show at the De Young Museum in 2012 and 2013. And it was all around like people had to follow their passions to create greatness in the world. And it was cool. One of the guys who unfortunately passed away a few years later, 
he has a talk that's had 12 million views and it's this, um, this guy named Scott Dinsmore. And it was all around people that like finding work that you love and people that I had a friend whose brother was uh, talked to at the event and he quit his job as an iBanker in New York and became a professional speed skater and be, went from literally not knowing how to skate on ice to becoming the 19th fastest speed skater in Canada. And so we had all these really cool people that came on and it was really, really inspirational for me. And that was how I got into TED. And, and this kind of all lines up to the values thing where I realized that business could be more than just about making money and, and it needed to be around having some fulfillment and some consciousness and some heart. And so I kept playing with the core values. Well, we'll fast forward to 2012 and I have this really successful joint venture that I grew from zero to like $42 million of revenue in a year. And, and I got bought out of it and we ended up parlaying that into what became the money source. And same thing there, we grew the business. When we got there, there was 30 employees and I grew it to 300 employees in 18 months. And there was a big difference that time from all my, my previous businesses. And at this point I was in my mid thirties and I was more mature and I understand what I was doing better. And, and, and I felt very comfortable growing a business. And, um, what I did was, is I grew the business and, and it was like drinking from a fire hose again, but it was comfortable that in that we were growing fast, but it was fun. It was fun. And people were getting along and we were, and we were having a good time. And at the end of the 18 months, I noticed something this time around, I, I had been, I had spent so much time with the core values that I figured out that not only do you have to discover what your core values are, but you have to design them for high utility value in your organization. And, and I had done that this time around with my partners. We had discovered our values and our values at TMS were caring about our people, integrity, because of course the mortgage industry, you can't like gloss over that one. Um, inspiration, how do we inspire our people? And then last but not least being service oriented. So those were the themes we landed on, but my belief is you have to design them for high utility value. So think of the difference between the Nokia and the iPhone, they have different utility value. The four things I just said may be values, but how do you use those values to create value in a business? And my perspective is, is core values are the most valuable tool we have in our businesses and our lives to make decisions with, uh, to do the things that we wanna do, to attract the right people around us and to create an immersive language for us to, to use, to live by. And, and so um, what I did at TMS was we took those themes and I believe you need to convert them into what I call headers. And headers are the sticky language. It's the, the viral language. It's the tone of the organization. And, you, and I do this in my personal life too, but um, caring became people matter. Inspiration became inspiring leadership. Um, strength of character, or sorry, inspiration, or sorry, uh, uh, integrity became strength of character and service orientation became rock solid service. And then we, below that, we, we, we build four to eight sentences which I call descriptives. And those became become really, how do we want these to be seen in the organization? Because when you go out and say you're a core value driven organization, the first thing your team does is start to use them against you. Oh, Darius, that's not people matter. I go, ah, ah, ah read that descriptive. Why is it not people matter? Oh, you didn't give me a raise. Well, no, people matter doesn't say I give you a raise. People matter says that we take care of our people and we expect excellence and blah, 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 blah. So sorry, dude, like it doesn't say person matters. It says people matter. <laughs> Um, and so those employees, <laughs> yeah, you know, look, there's, there's one universal truth. Um, you know, there is one really universal truth. I figured out Jessica and Svetlana. It's that it's for, with myself and with other people that it's all about me. And for you, it's all about you. 
And the minute I acknowledge that and cater to that, then I'm, I'm one step ahead. So I think employers and employees that understand and respect that, hey, it's all about you. Like I get that it's all about the team member. I'm gonna give before I ask. And so the core values is an opportunity to create accountability around that. So what ended up happening was when we went from 30 to 313 employees in 18 months and had zero growing pains, I was like, what the fuck did I just do? But I noticed something really unique was I had created a language. Like people were speaking the language of the organization. Our values were sticky and viral all over the organization. Like they were like, they were totally went viral. And, and, and when I did that, I was like, wow, this is incredible. I need to do more of this. And so I started really investing in, and experimenting. If you thought I, if I said I was a mad scientist CEO before I became like the Frankenstein mad scientist. Now I was like testing all crazy ideas and we had a lot of resources to do it. And when you're growing that fast, you're a new company every few weeks. So we, I was breaking the company all over the place, but what ended up happening next is we went from 300 employees to a thousand employees over the next 18 months. And I'd be lying if I said it, that was there was no growing pains. There were, but it wasn't because of the language of the organization. It was because we hadn't built the right infrastructure. And I ended up bringing it back down to about five, 500 employees, fixing everything. And then we scaled back up to about 900. And for me, it, it really comes down to this. Like if, if the foundation for scale growth and impact is values, when you create something that can be the decision-making tool for the organization, the job of the leader is to make them come to life, but that's all based on design. And what ends up happening in most organizations is that people, the normal path is this, and this is the, the error I made when I started. They discover their values. They do some shoddy rollout at best. Their implementation process, if there is any, is super weak. And then they go back to business as usual and they're like, whoa, these, we're a core value driven organization. And I'm like, yeah, bullshit. Um, and I was that, by the way. Um, I believe that the discovery process is a well-worn path. There's nothing I'm gonna teach there. You need to figure out what you are. The one thing I say in my book, chapter three is, core values don't need to be nice. If you're an asshole organization, just own it. You know, like we all know that person who's an asshole. The one that owns it is the one you like. Cause they're like, well, at least they, they don't, they're unapologetic about it. Right? They're authentic. It's yeah, totally they're, authentic. they're being themselves, yeah. I think too, uh, something important that you mentioned uh, as well, a few, a few things um, that I, that I want to point out. One being that in your, in your statement of that core value equation, your customers were included in that. So um, I think it was the fourth value that you had. It was all about the customer. So you mentioned it's all about me, but it is all about the customer as well. And that's where that customer experience comes in and and, and where that can trickle outside of your organization and those arms can kind of start spreading roots and, and like you said, go viral. Um, but, I, but another thing you mentioned too was really following your passions and, and being authentic and having that integrity. And um, since you're a TED, TEDx guy, um, one of my favorite uh, TED talks is, which I think is kind of relevant is um, Larry Smith, why you, why you will fail to have a great career. Okay. I don't know if you've seen that one. I, 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 you know, is he the one that does it down in, it's like Malibu, TEDx Malibu? I'm not sure which one he did, but if you get a chance, check it out because he, he talks about how, how everyone keeps saying, follow your passion, follow your passion, but people don't because they're following the financials, they're following the money, they're following what bucket they think they should fall into. 
Um, but you're just a true testament to somebody who looked at people around them that were following their passions and they were being successful. And you said, you know what, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to follow that and, and look where you are now. Um, and then you authored this book and you've come out with all these strategies and solutions. And so I just wanted to kind of take a moment to honor that. Um, and, and especially for our listeners, for people out there who are maybe, you know, in, in jobs that they don't love. And, and I know that not everyone can quit their job and do whatever they want, right? right. Bills to be paid. But I think that there is something to the inspiration behind your journey. So I did want to honor that for you. Oh, I appreciate that. And and, and I'm, I'm now it's interesting as I, I exited the money source. So I'm no longer I stepped down as CEO. I, I, and because I actually what didn't feel like I was in alignment with my values were in alignment with what I was doing anymore. Um, and the company is a great company. It, it was more of an industry decision. Um, but one thing that you just said that now I, I've been really, I mean, especially a mind like if you, if you have my crazy brain and you have no job to go to every day, like that's not a great place to be. Um, cause like, cause like I tend to like kind of I ideate like crazy. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Gallup strength finder, do you know that tool? Yeah, I've, I've done the, um, the strength finder 2.0. I'm forgetting what my outcome was though. I need to check. It's oh, in my book. Yeah. I, I'm an expert at strength. So if you tell me your strengths, I could tell you everything about yourself. Um, I'm going to pull my book down before the end of this podcast and, and tell you what my strengths were. Yeah, dude, I love it. So my number six strength is ideation. And so, which means I have no shortage of ideas. Um, one, when I had, uh, I have a seven and a 10 year old, but when my seven year old was born, he would only go to sleep when I was in his room. So I, every night I'd go in there and this is when I was running TMS um, a few years ago and I would lay there and I was like, you know, like an hour I'd have to lay there until he fell asleep. Cause if I got up, he'd start crying. So I'd have to wait for an hour. Yeah, exactly. I'd, if you if you know your strange, you, uh, read them to me. But um, I, I did this challenge with myself where I was like, I'm gonna come up with 10 new ideas per day and, and they have to be totally brand new ideas and they could be in any part of my business or life. And I quit 140 days in because I had 1400 ideas and I was like getting none of them done. So uh, I'm, I have no shortage of ideas, but one of the, my, my ideas that I've kind of fallen on now because I've been doing a lot of this work, one of the cool things about writing the book and getting it out there is that I get to talk about this stuff all the time, which I love. Um, and I landed and when I'm trying to get on podcasts, I'm like, huh, how can I set myself apart? So I, I have this like podcast one sheet and I send it out and I usually write these like interesting emails to people. And I wrote this one to this guy who was on his show and I said, so I'd love to talk to you about my, my fulfillment formula. And I wrote like ST plus CVE divided by meds equals fulfillment. And he's like, I'm you, you've left me intrigued. What I, I need to know what that means. So uh, for any listeners out there, I believe that fulfillment comes by finding out what your strengths and talents are rating them and living as high, if you can live within your top five talents and score them on a scale of one to 10 and say 10, they cannot be more alive and well, and one that they are not alive and well and all. If you could score a 10 on each one of your top five Gallup, Gallup talents, that the work you're doing is having you work in those talents. You add that up with your core values, figure out your personal core values, my book, core value equation, will show you how to do that. And then say, am I living in my core values? And we all fall out of our core values, but again, on a scale of one to 10, and then you divide that by meds and med stamps for meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. And I scale those on a scale of one to 10. So when I'm, when I have high awareness and I'm working in my strengths and living in my values, I tend to feel very fulfilled. 
So it's, and then it getting, then you could kind of reverse engineer into what, what type of job does that, you know, do you need to be in for that to be happening? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that because especially for the heart of our podcast, you know, we're talking to peak performers across a variety of industries, but we're talking not just about business. We're talking about health and wellness and how you can really marry the two together and, and heal yourself. I mean, especially people that throw themselves into work or throw themselves into athletics or whatever it might be there, there's this marriage between the two of those where you can really live an, an ultimate life. Um, and so one of my strengths is command. What can you oh, tell me? Oh, your that's an influence strength. Is that your number one strength? That's, I think it's my number one. Cause that's the one I have marked in the book, but I don't have the, um, the assessment oh, so, here. I just have the book. But. So Svetlana is, is, is she really bossy? Me? Is Jessica, is Jessica bossy? Um, Command is a very bossy strength. Generally. I think I'm pretty bossy, but I don't think I'm bo that bossy to Svetlana. <laughs> I don't feel that vibe. I don't know. I, I, I definitely don't feel like she's bossy. She just has a really good way of communicating like what she, like what she needs. She's really okay. good at stating it. So I, okay, that's good. That's great. So with the, with the st with strengths, they have they call them a balcony and a basement. Balcony is your strength being optimized, and a basement's when you're in the shadow of the balcony. It's like so. Uh, so for instance, my um, number three strength is woo, which is winning others over. Um, mm -hmm. The balcony of that is like people love being around me, and I can like I can get anyone fired up about themselves, and I like make them feel amazing. And the basement is that. I constantly, like when I was in college, I would have like five groups of friends and I would get, go to one group and become really friendly. And then I'd get bored and go to the next group. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then, so the problem with it is it can be perceived as superficial mm. because I don't, I tend to not like, whereas other people, if you have a relators in your top five strengths, people have less friends, but want to go super deep with their friends. And, and for me, I have a hard time with that. Just, it's not, it's not out of the superficiality. It's just like, it's just, I'm just being myself and I want to go, I want varieties of spice in my life. So I want to be friends with more people, but what ends up happening is people, most people aren't like that. They want to have their group and they're tight with their group. And then, and over time, what ends up happening is they're like, ah, Darius comes and goes, you know? So I don't, I end up kind of being by myself. So and you get locked out. <laughs> Yeah, you know, no. <laughs> yeah, well, but no, because I always make them all feel good. But but I'm not, I'm, I am not totally part of the, any clique. You know, I'm, I'm in no group. I'm in my mm -hmm. own group. So it's, it's a, it is a basement, you know, that's, so you just have the, having that awareness of what's the shadow of my strength and what's, what's the thing that makes my, my strength shine, you know, and just having, mm -hmm. having and that goes back to meds, like how meds is around awareness. And those four things are a practice of awareness. So and, 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 and I think that's, that's something you have to practice is not learned. And values is a part of that. Like values we are taught when we're very young that we need to have values, but no one teaches you how to live a core value driven life. They, they might show you through example, if you're lucky enough to have great parents or a great community, you, you'll get it through osmosis. But like, that's luck in my opinion. Most people I know have screwed up families, you know, or like elements of screwed up life and, and they're working through it, you know? Um, and, and for me, what I found, and I think where values really resonated with me was I grew up in a family where I did not have, like, my father was an entrepreneur, but he was not very like family oriented. He was really more around being a workaholic and he was not super engaged as a dad. 
and and I saw a person that lived a life uh, without engagement, like in the way that I think that, that I believe you need to be engaged. He was engaged in his work, but he wasn't engaged with the other parts of his life. He it was pretty out of balance. And and that's a story for another time. But um, but my belief is is that like how do you how do you, no one says when you're in first grade, hey, you need to learn your core values. <laughs> Like they don't teach me, like maybe they do now, but they didn't when I was a kid. Like they didn't teach you to have a high EQ and awareness of self and to like control one's mind, you know, which is our most powerful tool and muscle. Um, and so what's happened is, is that capitalism has not rewarded it either. Capitalism has been rewarding, go for the buck, take from the earth, and make what's yours. You don't get penalized if you can extract and win. And so that's been a, a big issue is that when you look at the, you know, like it's our parents and our parents' parents, they kind of screwed things up, you know, like they're all about mm -hmm. the bottom line. And and now here we are fixing it, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. politically we're paying the price for it too. Absolutely. Uh, my fiance always says to me, um, he, he read a, a book and I'm forgetting the author right now, but I'm sure anyone that's listening could go search this quote and find out who said it. But essentially the quote is, um, you're either, you're either taking advantage of people, you're taking advantage of the environment, or you're taking advantage of both. And those are the, the capitalist kind of financial driven companies that we've seen. And it's kind of a racket, you know, and, and yeah. how do you I, get I, that? Unfortunately. I, I, yeah, I would argue that 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 is honest. I do believe that that's very true. And our system, of, our incentive system is built around that being the way. I also think that there is a rising tide of conscious capitalism and, mm -hmm. and it's doing good, Absolutely. doing great by doing good. Right. And so mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm a, I'm a graduate of a program called the ILP program. It's an integral mm -hmm. leadership program at Stegen, which is basically it's a conscious capitalist leadership program. Um, I graduated from it in February and in my, in my class was the former CEO of Crate and Barrel, was the CMO and COO of Whole Foods. Like, so there is a rising tide of, of leaders who don't believe that, who we believe that we, that there is not shareholders, there are stakeholders and that the, the earth is a stakeholder and that I could beat the competition by caring about every, like every, if I look at the value chain, I don't just ignore that, you know, I had a guy on my show today that was talking about how he, when he was flying in a helicopter through the Suez Canal, that there was rivers of oil going into the ocean, you know, in the eighties. And there's an awareness, you know, it's a growing awareness that we can't just abuse and use to get what we want. And that someone's going to pay the price. There's a woman out of Scotland who I'm blanking on her name right now, but she's the, not the prime minister, but the first minister. Um, gosh, it's killing me. I don't know her name. Um, but you know, they're looking at alternative ways of measuring GDP, right? And you start to look at uh, Bhutan does this, by the way. Um, there's a book called Peak by Chip Conley. And he's a person that endorsed my book and he spoke at TED. And if you haven't read his, seen his TED talk, that's an amazing TED talk. It's measuring what matters. And you know, the country of Bhutan which is where the Himalayas are, they have a, a, a the gross happiness product. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. right. Measuring the gross happiness of their of their people. Right. So I think the world is starting to re recognize that capitalism needs to be sustainable and you can't just rip and abuse and make profit. And I and I'm I'm excited for the, the future of that. And I, I will tell you in my opinion, the foundation of that is core values. 
and, and that's the foundation of the behavior. And so what I, you know, going back to my book, I believe that the mistake that most people make is that they view values as an abstract idea and they've been allowed to be that. And, and I struggled with that. You know, when I was at the reason why 60 of us sat down or 58 of the 60 of us sat down, the only two people, by the way, were Ken and John, the guys running the workshop. They were the only two ones standing at the end. But I do this all the time. This is how I, whenever I go do a talk, I do this with everybody. So if you, if you ever come to one of my talks, be prepared to say your company core values. Um, and I love doing it. I love doing it with the most analytical minded people I can do it to because I like to take control of the room. And there's nothing better than telling them that they don't think that they don't know something they think they know to take control of the room. And so I always do it. And nine out of 10 times, people don't know their core values. So I would say about 90% of companies, the employees and the team and the customers don't know their values. And that's a great, that's an opportunity as far as I'm concerned. And so what my book really does is it goes the other way. It says, okay, look, why don't you know your values? And it's not because the CEO and the leadership team's like, man, let's just get this over with and go back to work. It's like, let's do this because we think it's important, but we've done it ineffectively. It has low utility value. We don't know how to make it up high utility value. So let's just go back to work because like, we don't know what the hell to do with this, right? Mm -hmm. So, And no one's going to do what I did, which was nerd out on it for a decade and a half and figure out the right way to do it, right? Like, mm -hmm. I just happened to have this calling for it and I don't even know what it was, but for whatever reason, I cared about it. And I sat there and played with it like a fool for literally 15 years. And what ended up at the end was, and, and the book really does a good job of this, is it says, there is a, the discovery process is a well-worn path. If I, you know, I don't know if you guys know your, do you guys know your core values, personal for values? our business or for personal? Let's say for, I don't know, let's do business first. Well, yeah, we sat down when we started this podcast and like one of the first things that I said, I was like, we need to write out our mission and like what our values are. So right. we're pretty, we're pretty good on like our mission statement, which, which is to inspire and empower people through telling them powerful stories that are bold, authentic. And like you said, like within integrity and, and, yeah, um, and our values, I mean, integrity, honesty, courage, um, love consciousness as well like we care about the earth we care about people um, so, so those are your you guys have five five core values i would i would say that we we sh should probably reconsider those values just from this conversation well Derek, yeah i mean honestly, um, <laughs> no, no 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 that's that's okay like like before we go there though i just want to make sure like you got those are your five defined values that you've written no about. i would say no. No, not defined like that i would say we we didn't create five values we sat down and created words like svetlana was saying integrity vulnerability transparency authenticity um words around what what we feel our core values are but i think the second piece of that which you mentioned earlier is making those fun and palatable um and and creating little um little, I mean, I'm, I'm blanking on the example of what you used earlier, but you said, okay, here's the word, but here's what it translates to in terms of a feeling right. emotion. Right, right. So, so what I would say is, I think I heard you guys say different words. I, I'm yeah. not sure, but it felt like you guys did. So yeah, we did. Like, we did. Yeah, 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 right, right, right. So <laughs> like, wrong. like, like you guys were both in the realms, but I'm like, well, it's your guys show. There should be really defined values. You both know them. You say them mm -hmm. off the top of your head. And the reason for that, by the way, no fault of your own, is that you did what most people do. You guys 
have the casual conversation about it. Maybe it was a little bit more than casual, semi-formal conversation. You landed on some themes and then you went back to work, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that's the mistake most people make is they land on the themes and the themes are generic. Mm -hmm. And what I say is like, look, I could line up 20 people that are doing different types of work and ask them what their values are. And they're probably sound similar to what you said if they have a similar ethos that you have which, you know, depending on their age and where they live or how they're brought up, you know, like those are generic themes. What I say is the real opportunity lies in translating those into what I call headers. Yes. So again, like authenticity, like I give the example of this. I have th three companies who are friends of mine who I've helped them do their values. Three of them will hold the word excellence in their core values. But the, like when you say they're, but that's not how we represent it because it's very different. The way one person's excellent may be different than the way the other one is. The way you guys represent authenticity or consciousness may be different than the way I do. The opportunity is in the translation. So what I say is that there, the discovery process is a well-worn path. You guys can read my book and do it that way, or you can do it however you guys did it, but you got to land on, as Jim Collins say, what are the three to six things that matter to you more than anything else in the world that you're willing to fall on your source, sword for, that you will never age out, that are non-negotiable as far as the two of you are concerned when it comes to what you stand for as an organization. This is what all organizations. Like the, th the word in my mind is like integrity. Right, so integrity is a good example. Uh, just, uh, you guys remember the company Enron? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, their number two core value is integrity. So what, what I tell people is like, you wanna define like, like, like just saying the theme is part of it. My company, Strength of Character, Integrity is our number two core value. The opportunity lies in taking your tone. The two of you have a tone, a way you speak to each other, a way you talk, a way you hold each other accountable. And when you do that, the book kind of takes you through this design process, which says integrity is the theme. That should be defined into a value that is befitting of the organization. And when you do that, when you put that tone and that language and those feelings into really smart ways of wording those words, it, they're much easier to remember. Those sound bites become something you can like, they become part of your language because they're already part of your language. You don't, yeah. they're not these boring generic words that everyone else does. And, and now you, there's meat on that bone. Mm -hmm. um, so what I do in the book is I go a different direction and I say the discovery process is a well-worn path. The gap is the design process. And I use the science of psychology, of memory, of marketing to say, how do you design these for high utility value? How do we design them to be sticky and viral in mm -hmm. our business and lives? And then once you've done that, well, that's, you, you've done the, the in, in a small organization, there's not a lot to do, but if you want them to be viral, if you want them to have scale, and what I say is they're the number one tool for scale in any organization. And an organization, by the way, is not necessarily just the business. It could be a team, it could be your family, it could be your friends, it could be a nonprofit organization you support. It could be your company, it could be your podcast. Organization is just a group of people coming together, right? What I say then is you want to roll it out. And, and I jokingly say, I want to create a cult. You know, I want to immerse people in the language of my organization. I want to brainwash them into the loving, loving what I am. And it, it's not hard to brainwash people when they already align to it, but I want to teach them how to immerse in that language. And the best way I can say it is if you want to learn Spanish, don't just read a book in Spanish. You got to go live in Spain, right? So I create that immersive environment and the book teaches you how to roll it out so that you give them an immersive environment. In the book, we say that's a core value wedding. Well, you know, Jessica, you're engaged. 
it sounds like you're going to get married, right? But before you get married, you're going to have a wedding. Well, having the wedding is the big day, like, all right. But if you had that great wedding, and then after that, your spouse never talked to you again, like, <laughs> there's a thing that's called divorce <laughs> that happens. And so after you roll out the core values, which is the wedding, like, then you're in a marriage. And the organization has an obligation to keep them alive and well. And what the book does is says, hey, there's some really easy ways of doing this. And what ends up happening with most organizations is they think of it as work. Like, oh, I got to go do all this extra work to make the core values be alive and well. And they create work to do it. And then at first it, it's fun. And then they're like, oh, I'm busy. Like, oh, I'm busy. I don't want to go do that workout. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I say is, no, no, no. Habit stack. Like, what are the things you're already doing? Just weave them in. And the book goes into some really easy ways to weave them in. Now, if you're like a maniac like I am, there's a lot of things you can do if you want to go above and beyond the easy stuff. And, and what, but what I say is, look, if you dis discover, design, roll them out, and then what I say is, I call it core value storytelling and core value advertising, put them up on the walls and create a mechanism to like talk about them on a pretty casual basis. That's 80% of what you need to do. And when you do that, they're alive. And then you can slowly build on top of them. And so the book really does that. But the fifth thing that it says, and this is the most important thing I think that organizations miss, is why do all this? Like, just because it sounds good? Yeah, I think that there's a consciousness in with millennials and Gen Z that this is important. I'm Gen X, like I'm stuck in the middle, like analog and digital is half and half. A lot of the old timers, they like, know they were supposed to do it, but they don't understand why or how. And half my partners are the old timers. So I, I, was, I come from banking. These guys are hardcore bankers. They don't give a shit about this. They care about making money, you know? So here I am like pink unicorning it up with like core values. And they're like, what's this joker doing? You know? And so for me, I, I, I figured out after the fact that I got really sensitive about proving that it was valuable. And so what I did is I started looking for some really well thought out tools to do that. And there's a few that I recommend. One is Bain's tool, which is NPS and ENPS. So that's employer net promoter score and net promoter score. Yeah. And what I say is if your customers are lawyer, loyal and your team's loyal, it means you have an engaged team. Your outside customers should be a reflection of the internal behavior of your organization. And I want to measure both. The external customer I measure on a monthly basis, the internal customer, my team, I measure on a quarterly basis, the in external customer, I don't do anonymously, the internal customer, I do do anonymous, anonymously, because I want them to feel safe so that they can speak openly and honestly about it. One of the key things I do with NPS and ENPS is when they give me the score, I ask them, why did you give me the score? So if they give mm -hmm. me a low score, I could search the spot, soft spots in the business. The other tool I really like is called Q12. That's Gallup's engagement tool. That's a much more, uh, much more, I like that tool because it's more actionable. And I was running a thousand employees with this 27 divisions, uh, probably 13 departments per division. Like this was no joke. And I could pinpoint to the manager where there was problems in the business. And I didn't know anyone's name in the company barely, mm -hmm. but the, but it spoke volumes when I saw engagement data that moved around and I started triangulating the data against traditional KPIs. And what I started to figure out was, oh, wow. You know, Gallup's not wrong. Gallup says that engaged team members produce at 21% more productivity than, than less engaged team members. And that's real profit. Your last dollar of profit is your most valuable profit a dollar, most valuable pro uh, profit, profitable dollar because you have your fixed expenses already covered. 
So I'm like, hey, look, don't do this because you love all this conscious capitalist bullshit stuff Darius is saying. Do it because you want to make more money. If you don't the believe- The analytics it. behind it speaks volumes. And, and you know, even though some of the data might be um, d- viewed in different ways between those two, uh, Gallup and NPS that you just mentioned, right. um, the, the, the analytics behind the numbers and, and what you're talking about in terms of percentages is going to make anyone want to create some core values, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, in the, it's in the money. <laughs> it's in the return on investment. Totally. So yeah, you got to have a good ROI on it. And, and, and for me, that was, uh, you know, I was trying to satisfy, like, look, fr- frankly, I just like doing this stuff because I really want to have a badass team and I, and it was a differentiating value proposition for me. But, um, but if you're, if you're not a believer, which most of my partners never were until I would do it and then show them the data, then I would say like, go look at the data to your point, Jessica. And, um, you know, if you don't do it, then you can fall victim to, what I'm about to say, which I, which is a very provocative statement, but we can probably end the show on this. Um, look, I believe that by 2030, every industry will be led by core value and core, core value and core purpose-driven organizations, and that they will kick the shit out of every single company that's not doing it. Like you, if you want to get beat, don't do it because companies like mine and people like I, I that I know, we're just going to be eating your lunch. And, and you want to know why? I'm going to, I'm going to go left brain here for a second. As tech, with Moore's losses, technology doubles every 18 months. And there's an exponential effect of that. So between now and 2030, you're going to have, what, six doublings. So, I mean, think about that. That's crazy to think about how much faster and better technology is. What that translates to people that don't understand what I just said is this. Technology is basically going to be free. So the difference between some minuscule little startup and some massive, like, you know, multinational corp, it's not going to be because of, 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 of tech, right? And when that happens, something else happens. Pricing becomes commoditized. So if I buy a good from big MNC or little Darius startup, pricing is about the same. So tech and pricing, so customer experience is the same. Price is the same. Well, what's your differentiating value proposition? It's really simple, talent. And so I'm just going to, and I say this every time, my team will always beat your team because my team is engaged and my team knows I care about them. And I make sure that we're aligned from a values perspective. And so I know for a fact, core value and core, core values and core, core purpose-driven organizations will be eating the lunch of every other company out there because everything else is going to be commoditized. So see you guys I in 2030. I agree with you. I'm not yeah, with Gary V by any chance. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I always joke. I'm like, I'm like the the, the Gary V that no one's heard of. <laughs> <laughs> the Darius V. Yeah. Oh man. Um, well, it's so great to have you on the show. Um, I I really enjoyed the conversation. That we could go in so many different. Yeah, I know. There's. <laughs> I have so many questions. I think we need to do a part two. Let's do it. We might need to do a part two, yeah. Darius. But um, but yeah, I, I think oh, yeah. overall, I want to make sure people know who you are, know where to find your book. Um, could you shout out for us where you're most active, maybe on social media, where people can find you and where they can purchase your book? Yeah, yeah. So therealdarius.com. So www.therealdarius.com. I stole that. I like Donald Trump, the real Donald. I was like, oh, I'm stealing that shit. I'm therealdarius.com. Um, <laughs> as opposed to who my friends say, I'm like the real Darius. So go to therealdarius.com. That's my hub. 
people that want me to speak or be on their shows or buy the book, you can buy the book through there. You can go to Amazon or any of those other places. The book's in every format, hardcover, softcover, ebook, and audio, um, audiobook. And, um, and I also have a live stream. So I have a live stream called The Greatness Machine. I'm actually, I have a show right, up, show right after this um, and that's on Facebook and YouTube and we're converting it to traditional long stream, a long form podcast soon. But yeah, you can go to uh, The Real Darius M on Facebook or you can go to therealdarius.com uh, and all the, my different links for live stream are on there. And um, I'm on Instagram, but it's under Woomp Darius, like Woomp, there it is. Um, yeah, I'm totally, oh, I'm dating myself when I, when I was when in high school, people, that? uh, W H O O M P Darius, Womp Darius. <laughs> so I was like, you can change your name. I'm like, my last name's 12 letters long. Like Darius at Darius Marshall's day is available. Trust me. No one's taking it. <laughs> no one's taking that one yet. Oh no, oh, I gotta, I gotta make it easy. Um, Well, thanks so much, Darius, for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to the Bold and Vulnerable podcast. For more information on today's speaker, please visit us at boldandvulnerablepodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Let's keep spreading the love by being bold and vulnerable. Thank you. We love you.